Uh, if you have a copy of the Scriptures, you can open it up to 1 Corinthians chapter 1. We are starting our new series in the book of 1 Corinthians. Many of you know that I have a love-hate relationship with my dog, <laughs> Sophie, uh, largely because I'm not certain she really is a dog. Now, she's certainly anatomically a dog, right? She's a dog. She does not have many traits of a dog except for her appearance. She's a cat-like being, <laughs> and uh, in many ways that's hard for me to deal with. She's also, uh, as, as Jeff Miller from our church often reminds me, she's also a little bit, there's got to be a little bit of potbelly pig in her, right? Have you ever, if you've never seen Sophie before, the first time you see her, you're going to remember this thing that I just said, and it's going to make you laugh. Uh, she's that way because she's, you know, she's not skinny, and she's got short legs, and she snorts a lot. <laughs> and so I have a love-hate relationship with Sophie because there are times when, like, I like to cuddle with her, and she's fun, and we play. And there's all these other times when she drives me crazy. Like, for instance, last night, um, I was uh, watching the football game. Sorry, Packers fans. And um, Rachel, was, Rachel was on the couch uh, pretending like she wanted to watch football with me, secretly sleeping. Uh, and she had a blanket over her because it was a little chilly. And Sophie had snuggled with Rachel, and she was under the blanket. Uh, and so like 10 minutes after Sophie got under there, she started gasping for air. She's a pug, so she struggles to breathe. And I'm st- and it's driving me crazy. So finally I have to wake up Rachel to, to extricate Sophie with the jaws of life from underneath the blanket so that she doesn't perish, you know. And this happens literally two to three nights a week, even in our bedroom, just in her little bed in our bedroom. And if that doesn't happen, she always snores. Like, I believe that I snore. You'll have to ask Rachel. I think I snore, and I think it's probably bad. She's way worse. Have you ever heard a dog snore? Sophie snores so loud that it would drive you crazy. Like, you literally have to, you know, put headphones on to go to sleep. She's, I have a love-hate relationship with Sophie. One of the things that has driven me crazy about Sophie lately is that um, she'll appear out of nowhere with this urgent need to go out, to go to the bathroom, right? So we have to let her out the back. Now, I work from home, so my office is on my couch and my chair and whatever. And so literally what happens is Rachel will go off to work and I'll get the boys ready for school and I'll take them to school and I'll come back and I'll quick read the newspaper and then I'll get started into my work day. And 45 minutes into it, when I'm starting to really groove and move, Sophie appears from out of nowhere and demands to go out, right? And it's not just a, you know, a look at you like I've got to go out. It's a, just imagine your three-year-old or five-year-old or six-year-old or whatever when they've got to go to the bathroom really bad. You know, they cross their legs and they jump and they're doing whatever they can. This is what Sophie looks like. And she appears to me like her little, her little collar is dangling and her legs are shaking. She looks at me and... And there's this urgency, and it drives me crazy because it's always at the worst times. And I think to myself, couldn't you have the courtesy dog to, like, appear to me 20 minutes earlier so that I could have some time to transition into the really difficult task of getting up and opening the back door so you could go out, right? Okay, this is all about me, isn't it? I apologize. I was thinking about that uh, as I was reading over 1 Corinthians chapter 1 again this week because Paul, in essence appears before the Corinthians in a letter here, and, he, and the message he has is so urgent, it can't wait. Usually Paul goes on these long, elaborate greetings. If you've read some of his letters before, Ephesians in particular, these long, elaborate greetings of why he loves them, and he's thankful for them, and so on and so forth. And 
1 Corinthians, there's none of that. There's this little part, but he's, the message he wants to say to the church is so urgent to him, he's like Sophie appearing to me, needing to go out. Like, he's got to get to it right away. And it's coming out literally in the second verses uh, in, in powerful ways. So, three things I want to suggest to you this morning. We're going to read 1 Corinthians 1-17 through 17 before we're done this morning. Three things that I want to suggest to you from that passage is that God establishes the church. The church is established by God, first thing. Second thing is that the church is enriched by God. The third thing is that the church then ought to be led by God. Now, this is where Paul is really irritated with the church at Corinth. So, let's start reading together. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 1. Paul, called to be an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God and our brother Sosthenes, to the church of God in Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus and called to be His holy people, together with all those everywhere who call on the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, their Lord and ours. Grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, you may not pick up on it, but Paul is already getting into his argument or his struggle or his issue with the people at Corinth. Um, Did you ever... When you were a kid, and this probably never happened to you because you're all perfect, did you ever like break curfew? And um, sometimes when you break it, you just figure, well, I've already broken it. I'm just going to really break it. <laughs> and so you come rolling in several hours late, and either mom or dad is sitting there waiting for you, right? They're not going to deal with it the next morning. We've got to deal with this now. This is, this is what I picture Paul doing, right? The Corinthians have broken the spiritual curfew, and Paul is right there waiting for them. Like, let's get to the heart of the matter right now. And the first thing that he wants to say, and this may seem obvious to you, and it may have seemed obvious to them, is that the church has been established by God. So he calls them the church of God at Corinth. And Paul never uses this phrase in any of his other letters. And so we've got to, like, our ears have got to go up. Wait a minute, why is he saying this? In the other letters, he'll call it the church at Ephesus, the church at Philippi, the church at Galatia, the church in God at at Thessalonica. And here he says the church of God. And there's a reason for it because his whole argument, his whole issue, his whole sort of exhortation against them is going to be on the basis that this church belongs to God and not them. And that's how things have gotten off the rails for them. There's some interesting words in this phrase, church of God. The word church is the Greek word ekklesia. And this word really means a gathered assembly. It was used often in extra-biblical language of uh, groups gathering together, but most specifically sort of like uh, local governing authorities that would gather together to represent the people of the area. And so when this word is used of the church, it kind of carries that idea with it. This people gathered together by God as a representation of Him. More importantly, the word ekklesia is what's used in the Septuagint. If you don't know what the Septuagint is, it's the Greek translation of the Hebrew Old Testament. So, when the people in Jesus' day wanted to have the the Hebrew translated into into the Greek language, uh, because that was what was being used in the day, when when they used the words for Israel being the gathered people of God, they used the word ekklesia. Ekklesia of God. So this is rooted way deeper than just the New Testament church and certainly way deeper than just a local church at a city named Corinth. In many ways, one 
uh, interpreter has said this, and I think he's right, that when God uses the word ecclesia, he's saying that the church is now the newly uh, affirmed or, or um, consecrated people of God. The church has literally become what Israel once was. The gathered people of God, gathered to represent Him. And I said earlier, this, this uh, phrase of God, it's a genitive case in the, in the original Greek, theu, uh, has the idea that it, that it not only was established by God, but it continues to belong to God. And so everyone reading this, you included probably are thinking, well, duh, this makes perfect sense, doesn't it? Of course the church was established by God, and of course it belongs to God. But the problem is, you and I, just like the church at Corinth, we believe that, but we never function like that. Almost never. Because we're humans, and we can see and touch each other and talk to each other, and there are human leaders, and suddenly the church becomes about people and not about God. And this is the case for the church at Corinth. When Jackson was a baby, we were in the King of Prussia Mall, and my parents, you know sometimes they have those little artisans like that have... Um, stands set up throughout a mall, and this artisan was, was uh, spray painting or painting you know, child imagery on a big toy bucket and then, then painting their names on it. And so my parents, as they often do, they got that for Jackson. And so Jackson had this toy bucket. Uh, well, several years later, Tyler was born, and Tyler grew up, and suddenly Tyler realized that Jackson had a toy basket with his name on it, and he didn't, largely because... That artisan didn't exist at the King of Prussia Mall, and we didn't live in that area anymore anyway. So Tyler decided, well, then what I'm going to do is get a marker and write my name on Jackson's toy basket. <laughs> and friends, I think this is what we do with the church, is it not? The church is God's, and then we just put our name all over it and say, nah, it's ours. And this is certainly what had happened at the church in Corinth. And Paul goes on and says, not only are the church of God, but you're sanctified, set apart as holy people for God. And once again, this is an extended sort of identification of the people he's writing to that happens nowhere else in all of Paul's letters. He simply says who they are and goes on to say what they're thankful for. Paul feels the need to really identify these people because he's building his argument on it. They're sanctified. That is, they're set apart for God and by God. God not only gathers them to represent Him, but He pulls them apart of His own accord, of His own action. And He calls them holy people, the Greek word heios. Once again, used in the Septuagint to refer to Israel. Exodus chapter 19, when the people of God have finally been brought out of exile in Egypt and gathered together and they're ready to hear the laws of God as to how they ought to live God calls them his hegeos, his holy people. And so what Paul is drawing on here is the long lineage of history of God himself gathering his people for his own purposes and demanding of them that they live a certain way so that they represent him well. That we are gathered by God. That we are named by God. That we're called to represent God. And how do we do it? We do it by living how He asks us to live. Living how He asks us to live. And clearly, Paul is drawing on this idea of holiness. He says to them, very literally, you are called to be holy. 
Now we read over that and think, well, of course. But most of us do not take holiness as a personal calling. Most of us take holiness as this idea of what we could be or what we should be, not a personal call to obedience. Listen, what I'm not talking about is legalism. Uh, If you think I'm talking about that, you haven't sat with us long enough. I'm not talking about you going to prove to God that you deserve to have been gathered by Him. I'm talking about you responding to the beauty that God would gather you as part of His people and call you holy and sanctified, set apart, that you could represent Him, and that because of that you choose to honor Him. See, we'll find out later, the church in Corinth had become so spiritual in their own minds that they had totally lost this idea of honoring God with their life. Paul uses the word spiritual so many times in 1 Corinthians. It's rivaled only by the word wisdom. And he uses both of them in a sarcastic way to say, you idiots, (laughs) you think you're so spiritual and so wise, and yet you can't even get the simplest thing right in your own life. And we'll find out that some of the things they screw up, we're going to be like, are you kidding me? And then we're going to be forced to look at our own lives and think, oh my goodness, (laughs) me too. See, what the Corinthians thought is you've got to, to, to aspire to be spiritual. And once you become spiritual, then you are what God wanted you to be. And I think what Paul is urging them in this letter and what we've entitled our whole series is that no, It's not about you being spiritual or having a spiritual life. It's that life is spiritual. That you're called to live out as a realization of the spiritual thing that God has done in you, namely that you have the Spirit. So what does this all mean? That God establishes the church. Well, I think for us as a new church, we've got to to wrestle hard with that. That this church is God's, it's not ours. It's not ours because we banded together to to get it going. It's not ours because we're here on the front lines. It's not ours because we have the gifts to keep it moving. It's it's His. As hard as we want to write our names on the toy basket, it's it's His. It's not ours. It's His. It's not ours. We're called as His people to be holy. As hard as that may seem, much as we'd rather not have to worry about those things. That we're actually called to be very much active participants in what the Spirit wants to do in our lives in terms of changing us and making us the holy people that God desires so that we can represent Him well. And then I would suggest to you this third thing, that you should already be in on, right? That this whole letter is going to once again, shocker, shocker, be about the gospel. Because here we are, what are we saying? That uh, you have nothing to offer God, but God has gathered you of his own accord. And as a response to him gathering you, he's asking you to live in a way that honors him. That's the gospel, right? That, That we didn't choose God, that God chose us, and that he's asking us in a response to it to live for him. This is Paul summarizing all of Romans in two to three verses, that this whole thing is going to be about the gospel. Second thing then, if God establishes the church, is that God enriches the church. Listen to what he says in verse 4 here, Paul. I always thank my God for you because of his grace given you in Christ Jesus. For in him you have been enriched in every way, 
with all kinds of speech, with all knowledge, God thus confirming our testimony about Christ among you. Therefore, you do not lack any spiritual gift as you eagerly wait for our Lord Jesus Christ to be revealed. He will also keep you firm to the end so that you'll be blameless on the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. God is faithful who has called you into fellowship with His Son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. God not only establishes the church, gathers it to represent Him, calls them to be holy, but He enables them to be holy. He enriches them. Listen to the three things he says here. Paul's thankful to them for the grace that God has given them, for the gifts that they demonstrate, and for the faithfulness of God in their midst. In all three of these things, God is enriching the church. Enriching the church. Paul's thankful for the grace. What are we talking about when he talks about grace? He's talking about the realization of the gospel. That the gospel is real in their lives. That it's not only sort of this idea that is out there, but that it's for them. That Christ died for them. That God has rescued them. And then also the reception of the gospel. That God, through His effort, has enabled them to understand and to respond to the gospel and to call it their own. He's grateful and thankful to them for grace. The church has been enriched through the grace of God. Can we argue with that in any way? Imagine a church trying to function outside the grace of God, apart from a gospel. Well, it's probably not hard to imagine, is it? Because most churches function that way. It's called religion. We better get everything right, otherwise we're not worthy. The gospel says, oh man, we screw up a lot, and yet his love goes on and on and on. We can't be bought out of it. Secondly, God enriches them is through gifts. This is a huge deal in the letter to the Corinthians. We'll talk a lot about this, and it's controversial in some ways, and some of us will have different opinions about this, and we can't even be certain what Paul's opinions are about it. What I can be certain is, in these verses, he's being particularly sarcastic with the Corinthians, and I love Paul for that, because who doesn't want some good sarcasm? At least I do. I like it. (laughs) Feel free to be sarcastic with me. He mentions two gifts in here, and this is how I know he's being sarcastic, because these are the two gifts that the Corinthians loved more than anything. And Paul's basically saying, oh, I'm so thankful you have these two gifts. And secretly he's saying, boy, you love these two gifts so much that you've missed the whole idea about the gospel, right? Wisdom and and language, speaking in tongues particularly, he's talking about here. I'm so grateful you have these gifts, Corinth. And they would have been like, yeah. And secretly he's saying, no, I'm not. You've made, you made your whole spiritual reality about these two gifts and you've missed everything else because of it. Largely the gospel, by the way. But in the serious tone of Paul, he is saying he's grateful for the gifts because what does he say? It proves that the testimony of Christ is real in them. In other words, that the realization of spiritual gifts in our midst as a church proves gospel faith in our church. Because spiritual gifts don't exist where the Spirit isn't. And the Spirit isn't where gospel faith isn't, right? We receive the Spirit as a down payment for our trust and belief in Christ. So the presence of gifts in our midst, hospitality, teaching, all of these things, is because the Spirit is in us, changing us, enriching us, enabling us to be all that God intends us to be. We'll talk about this a lot as we get further into the letter. 
But let me just make this statement at the outset. If spiritual gifts prove the existence of gospel faith, then spiritual gifts must be used to embolden gospel faith. If the whole reality of spiritual gifts proves the testimony of Christ to be true, then why would we use them for anything other than proving the testimony of Christ to be true? It makes no logical sense, does it? And yet, spiritual gifts in the church are often used for personal gain, as was being done in the church at Corinth. And Paul is getting right after it, even as he's being thankful for them. Then he enriches, says he's grateful that they've been enriched by God in God's faithfulness. He says three things here under faithfulness. The first is that God will be faithful to see them through to the end, right? That they will persevere. And then secondly, not only that that they'll persevere, they'll see him through to the end, but that he'll see them still as blameless in the end. Now this is huge to the church at Corinth because Paul's got a lot of things he's going to blame them for in this letter. But he wants them to know at the outset that that God is going to see them through to the end of this. And he's going to see them as blameless, those who have truly trusted Christ. And friends, this is the greatest news of the gospel, is it not? The gospel isn't just what gets you in, it's what keeps you in. That it's not just about, oh, thank goodness for the gospel, and now I can have access to God, and I better get everything right, otherwise I might lose it. That's religion and legalism. But the gospel says, no, God's going to keep you to the end. And then he says this interesting thing. That through the faithfulness of God, he's gathered you together in fellowship with Christ. And I think he's not just talking about individual connection to Christ because he's talking to the church as a whole. I think he's talking about gathering them together as a church as the body of Christ. And he says, this is because of the faithfulness of God that he's gathered you together. Why? so that you can persevere and be centered on the gospel. The the togetherness of the church is what's meant to keep people pushing forward. The community has that critical role in establishing our faith in a strong way going forward. All of these things are the faithfulness of God. Not just that God will keep you, not just that God will keep you blameless, that God's put you in a church where we can agree on the main thing, but as we're going to see right now, we're going to disagree on a whole lot. It's going to be trouble, and maybe we should just better go do our own thing, right? So I don't have to be bothered with all these other people over here. Paul's saying, no, 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 no. It's the faithfulness of God that he's put you here. Because this is going to help you, not hurt you. So then, what Paul wants to get into right away is, if, if the church has been established by God, that is, it's been gathered by God to represent God, and it's been enriched by God, in other words, it's been given everything it needs to be what God has called it to be, then who should lead it? God. Right? But this is not happening at the church in Corinth. Listen to this. Here we go. Paul is right into it. Verse 10, I, I appeal to you, brothers and sisters, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, this is strong language, that all of you agree with one another in what you say, and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be perfectly united in mind and thought. My brothers and sisters, some from Chloe's household have informed me that there are quarrels among you. The scholars have argued about just who Chloe is, and the answer is we don't know. It's a chance that Chloe was part of the church at Corinth. It's possible. And so Paul hears directly from the horse's mouth 
It's also a chance that Chloe was a wealthy business person in Ephesus, where Paul is writing from, and she's got colleagues that, that promote her business around the area, and so she's got people going into Corinth who are hearing this and bringing it back to Paul in Ephesus. Either way, somehow through Chloe, Paul has gotten uh, hold of some damning realities in the church of Corinth. Now, I should pause and say, 1 Corinthians is written as a response to a correspondence that the church at Corinth had written to Paul, asking him to help them with some questions. So the church at Corinth writes to Paul, hey, we need help with some things, can you help us out? This was not part of what they wrote to him. This is something he heard from outside of it. Oh, I'm going to respond to what you want to hear, but I've got something to say to you first. Right? This is what Paul is saying here. So he's heard from Chloe's household that there are quarrels among you. Verse 12, what does this mean? What I mean is this, one of you says, I follow Paul, another I follow Apollos, another I follow Cephas, still another I follow Christ. Is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Were you baptized in the name of Paul? I thank God that I did not baptize any one of you except Crispus and Gaius, so no one can say that you were baptized in my name. Uh, yes, I also baptized the household of Stephanus. Beyond that, I don't remember if I baptized anyone. So here is biblical proof for senior moments, right? Right right here in the Scripture. The Holy Spirit did not edit this out. Paul's like, I only baptized two people. And I imagine Stephanus is right there. He's like, what about me? You baptized me. And he's like, oh, shoot. Put that in there. I baptized Stephanus. And you better just make, better just make another remark. There may be other people I forgot. I apologize, right? You know, it's kind of like Paul winning his Oscar. There's so many people I want to thank. I don't remember anyone. Uh, For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, not with wisdom and eloquence, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. So here we go. We've turned the corner and Paul is right after it. This is the issue he wants to hit on hard. That there are divisions and quarrels in the church. Now the church has not splintered and separated yet. How do we know? Because Paul's addressing them all together as one. So obviously they're still together. But obviously he's strongly fearful that they're going to go their separate ways over issues that he thinks are not important to separate over. Paul would argue that God needs to lead the church, not man. So let's talk about these disagreements, what we can figure out from them. There are four groups as Paul sees them. Is it possible there were others? Sure, it's possible there were others. Paul names four. He says, first is the group that says they follow Paul. Uh, And you would think that Paul would support them, but he doesn't. He hates them. Uh, He's not glad that they're using his name. He's not happy that they're purporting whatever they're doing in his name, specifically because they're trying to make themselves better than other people. We'll talk about this in a second, but Paul has spent his whole apostolic career urging people to be unified in the midst of diversity. He doesn't want people to separate because of diverse ideas. He wants them to be together. And Paul's so much so strong about this that he even says, hey, this is why I don't baptize people. <laughs> right? Can you imagine a pastor saying, you know what, uh, I'm going to be your pastor, I'm going to preach to you, but I'm not going to baptize any of you because I don't want any of you claiming something on me that you don't. So this is what Paul does, right? Because it's different in his day than in our day. Today we baptize people and it's sort of part of religious ceremony and rite. In those days when someone was baptized, they very much felt like they were being brought into the school of the person that baptized them. So it's this first century idea of discipleship. So that when John the Baptist was baptizing people, they kind of became John the Baptist's followers. We know that he had a following, right? Uh, in the same 
way. And so sort of when people were baptized by someone, they felt like they became a disciple, sure of Christ, but of Paul and of Apollos and of Peter. And Paul's saying, hey, for that reason, because I'm, I'm so desperate that you follow Jesus and not something else, I, I tried not to baptize very many people. That's strong language. Can you imagine? The Apostle Paul, who's, who's having all these converts and winning all these people to Jesus, and all these churches are starting, and he's not baptizing them. Like, I'd be baptizing people like crazy and celebrating all these wonderful things that God had done through me, you know? But Paul, <laughs> Paul doesn't do that, you know, because he gets it right. And we don't know what these people's beef is. We don't know what their theology is. We just know they're basing it on the Apostle Paul, and Paul is saying, uh-uh, not good. Second group is this group that says we follow Apollos. If you read uh, the book of Acts, you'll find out that Apollos is a gifted orator, a great speaker, a great teacher, uh, has a Greek Hellenistic influence, uh, probably a philosophical influence. He could speak and captivate a crowd. And he came to Corinth after Paul had left and preached the gospel well after he was sort of roughed into shape by Priscilla and Aquila, got some things wrong, and they helped him get right. But he was a gifted speaker. And so many people followed him after that way. Um, and this is why you will find out through all the book of 1 Corinthians, Paul is quick to, to say a lot, hey, I'm not a great speaker, I know it. Now this would be revolutionary to us, because we can't even imagine Paul not being a terrific speaker, because that's what it takes to win people to Jesus, right? But Paul pretty much is willing to admit time and time again, hey, I'm terrible, <laughs> you know, especially compared to Apollos. He just said it here in verse 17, like, I just give it to you, the basic stuff, and I hope that the cross is powerful enough because my words aren't going to do it. So it's possible that the people that followed Apollos valued his wisdom and his sort of lofty speech, and and we're going to follow him in in his sort of Hellenistic Greek, cultural, nuanced sort of... We don't follow great teachers anymore, do we? Gosh, that's what Christianity almost is. That's scary these days. Now listen, Paul is not really taking issue with Apollos. He'll go on to approve of what Apollos has done. He's taking issue with the people who have taken what Apollos has done and made it more, just like he is the people that made it more. Now we know that in the midst of all of these, these rifts that some of the people at Corinth, are, they've got issues with Paul. Right? They're, 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 they struggle with him. Then there's the issue with Peter, who we call Cephas here on purpose because he wants to highlight his Jewish bent. We can only imagine that there are people who want some cultural Judaism in the church. And again, Paul's saying, listen, why? And then the group that follows Christ. And we would normally read this and say, okay, here's the group that gets it right. But context tells us Paul's still not pleased with this group. Right? None of these groups get it right. Because probably these are people who have sort of gone and done their own thing on the basis of their own interpretation of Christ, their own vision of Christ. But every make of these four groups, at the end of the day, what Paul wants you to know is they shouldn't be splintering the church. And yet they're about to do it. So what does Paul urge them to do? Two things. He says agree. It's the positive thing he wants them to do. And the negative thing he wants them to do is not divide. You better agree and you better not divide. Well, what does he want them to agree on? Let's read this again. Uh, verse 10, I appeal to you, brothers and sisters, in the name of the Lord Jesus, that all of you agree with one another in what you say, and that there be no divisions amongst you. What I would suggest to you, what Paul wants them to agree on, is what he has just told them. That the church belongs to God. They've been enriched by God. 
and therefore no one of them is more important than any other. There's that God has gathered them together, not Paul, not Apollos, not Peter, not anyone else. That God has set them apart, not someone's lofty teaching or more cross-centered teaching or whatever. God has done it. That God has enriched them, not themselves or someone else's spiritual gifts. And that this church belongs to God, specifically the gospel, right? Paul wants them to agree on the gospel. Hardcore agreement on the gospel. He wants them to say and think the same things about the gospel. He says without division. What does he mean by without division? Well, he means don't divide, right? Specifically, don't divide over secondary issues. So Paul says, listen, let me just say this, and this can be hard for us to understand. Let me try to summarize this quick. Paul is urging for unity without uniformity. He's urging for a church that is, that is boldly united and widely diverse. In other words, he's not saying stop following Apollos. He's saying don't be part of a different church and still follow Apollos. Does that make sense? He's not saying stop following me or stop following Peter or don't be influenced by Peter or don't be influenced by these people, but stop trying to go do your own thing just based on this one person. The gospel is the main thing. Everything else is secondary, and yet the church at Corinth is ready to divide over secondary issues, and so does the church in America almost every single day. We're like, well, whatever you want to believe about the gospel is fine, but you better have this view of the end times. Whatever you want to say about the gospel is wrong, but you better take, you better not baptize babies, you better baptize adults, or vice versa. Really? These are secondary issues. Don't divide over them. Unite over the gospel. Can I just say something to you? There could be no more powerful witness to the church than a diverse church, not just ethnically, not just by age, not just socioeconomically, but even in ideas and secondary theologies and understandings of God that is somehow united by the Spirit because the gospel is bigger than my hermeneutics of the Scripture. Do you see this? And Paul wants this so hard in every single letter because he knows it's going to be the witness that lasts. All these other movements are going to flame out when the leader dies off. Right? Or when the movement becomes not in vogue anymore or whatever. But the gospel never dies off. And a group that's willing to set aside your disagreements over secondary issues so that we can be bonded together in the gospel says, wait a minute, says to the world, wait a minute, there are thing, there's something bigger than me? Now that's a more powerful testimony than any preacher will ever give. Wait a minute, you go, you go to the same church with someone who believes in speaking in tongues and, and you think that the gifts have ceased? Yeah. Why? Because it's secondary. The gospel is primary. Why is there unity in the church? Because Christ is not divided. This is what Paul says, right? We, we, we preach to the world a Christ that is in pieces rather than a Jesus who is undivided. And this is why our testimony to the world is powerless. It's just a bunch of words that a preacher speaks. Rather than a group of people who is widely diverse politically, hermeneutically, in understandings of Christian praxis, but they are on point on the gospel. There is no disagreement. Hey, listen, no one's saying you can't have your opinions. You better study Scripture and come to opinions. 
You better be a wise individual and figure these things out. But you will grow in a culture of agreed disagreement far more than you ever will in a cult of forced agreement. Right? And that's what it is, by the way. It's a cult. Let's just call it what it is. Not the church. Because Paul has a different picture of the church. A church where Gentiles and Jews hang out together. That's way more profound than you and I having disagreements and hanging out together. Paul argues for this kind of unity vigorously all throughout Scripture. This is what Paul wants. Listen, church, as we go through this book, he's going to be talking about issues that are hard-hitting. And I can just promise you already, you are going to disagree with me, and I'm going to disagree with you, and you're going to disagree with each other over some of these issues, but they are secondary. All right? Whatever you do with Romans or with 1 Corinthians chapter 13 should have no determination on what we together do with the gospel. All right? You may think that women should wear head coverings and I may not. Right? That has nothing to do with the gospel, right? Let's be on point together and not divide over secondary issues. Four takeaways I want to give you. The first is this. The church the, the main thing in the church is Jesus. All right? And our main message is the gospel. And we need to fight hard to make sure those are the main things. Because the sneaky deception of Satan is not to like throw firebombs in church. It's to sneakily get them off course into secondary issues. And then they become irrelevant. Oh, there's a church that ought to be making the name of Jesus known, and yet they're arguing about you know, you know, how to handle this particular passage of Scripture, and they've divided over each other. You know, Someone told Martin Luther that the end result of his um, reformation was going to be a widely splintered church. (laughs) And they were right. And they keep splintering and splintering to separate. And then you have the testimony of a man named Martin Luther who had no desire to be anything other than a Catholic monk. They had to kick him out. He wasn't going anywhere. He wanted to stay and reform the gospel. This is what we're talking about. The second thing I think is important for us as a church is this. Listen, we've got to be careful that we're no, not just, just blindly following leaders and therefore missing Jesus. There is a, a desperate issue in the church today that I think people are not talking hard enough about, and it's what I will call celebrity pastors. It is ruining the church. Because people are no longer engaged in their local church because they follow their celebrity pastor. Can I just tell you that discipleship doesn't happen from a speech or a book? It happens in community. When you're actually forced to work these things out together amongst people who are like you in the main thing but different in the secondary things. We've got to get away from that stuff. Third thing is for us as a church, it's uniformity Excuse me, it's, it's unity without uniformity. We are not looking to make cookie-cutter hope disciples. That's a cult. We want to be a church where the gospel, you are solid on the gospel, and you are encouraged to explore for yourself <clears throat> amongst the other things, and for us to have meaningful discussions and ideas about the other things, and to be welcoming and hospitable to each other, even if we disagree about secondary things. This is the church. This is the church. And then leaders. 
But the main way God leads the church is He establishes leaders. Paul calls them elders. He's always urging pastors to establish elders in the church. And the elders have two roles. Two roles. Protect the gospel and preserve unity. Protect the gospel and preserve unity. And Paul will do anything to protect the gospel and preserve unity. And most leadership in the church today will do anything to not have to deal with either of those two things and rather to major on the minor things. What if this was us? If we really had a view of ourselves as a church gathered by God to represent God. How do we represent God? Surely through our holy living, but also through our unity, even in the midst of wide diversity, as it bears witness to Jesus. Jesus knew what he was doing when he called Peter and Paul, because those two didn't agree on much, yet they were solid on the gospel. Because this is the powerful witness of the non-broken-into-pieces Jesus. So let's not worship leaders, let's worship Jesus. Let's not focus on secondary issues, let's make the gospel the main thing. And why? So that this city would know an undivided Jesus. Can I pray with you?